This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 14. Hi there, and welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part 14, America and Iran before 1979. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change, and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English, and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Zirnavis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms, and we invite you to check out parts 1 through 13 of this series that are already posted. To become a sponsor or patron of Rook Media, please contact us through our website. The Contemporary History of Iran is brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group. YLG is one of the largest Iranian-Canadian immigration law firms. Their mission, rooted in the leadership of founder Afshin Yazdani, is built on continuously striving to innovate and introduce new immigration pathways for their clients. Afshin began his career as a lawyer and law professor in Iran, and his company has now made it their goal to provide the best, simplest, least risky, and most inexpensive way to immigrate to Canada. YLG has an impressive track record, hundreds of applications from Iran successfully processed every year. They are at YLGPC on Instagram. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 14. Well, in looking at the contemporary history of Iran, there can be no international relationship more significant, more beloved, more bilateral, more controversial, and ultimately more adversarial than that between Iran and the United States. Today, we know America and Iran to be publicly declared enemies that engage in verbal saber-rattling, threats and sanctions, and a tenuous on-and-off-again nuclear deal. But if the relationship between the U.S. and Iran is troubled today, and we date that back to 1979 and the revolution that removed an American-friendly Shah and followed with a hostage crisis, and even if we go back to the problems arising for many Iranians in 1953 and the U.S. role in a coup to remove the prime minister, what about the years in between and before these moments in history? In other words, if we look at the totality of the relationship between America and Iran before 1979, what might we find? 
In fact, the answer seems to be the story of two nations who engaged in decades of mutual respect, admiration, and overt cooperation. In fact, we see a long-standing courtship that, at times, veered into romance. To discuss America and Iran before 1979, I'm joined by an acclaimed historian who has quite literally recently written a very detailed book about this subject. Dr. John Qazvinian is an author, historian, and former journalist. He was born in Iran and raised in London and Los Angeles. Dr. Qazvinian obtained his Ph.D. in history at Oxford University. He's currently the executive director of the Middle East Center at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Dr. Qazvinian has written for numerous publications such as Newsweek, The Nation, and The Sunday Times, and was the recipient of a Public Scholar Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Humanities in 2016-2017, as well as a fellowship from the Carnegie Corporation's Special Initiative on Islam in 2009-2010. He is the author of Untapped, The Scramble for Africa's Oil, as well as the co-editor of American and Muslim Worlds Before 1900. And as I mentioned, his latest book published this past year is entitled America and Iran, A History from 1720 to the Present. And right now, Dr. John Azvinian joins me from Philadelphia today. Hello, sir. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for doing this. And your book, I must say, is quite spectacular. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Uh, John, John you, seem, you seem to take the position that you believe we need to rethink or reapproach the way we see relations between America and Iran, and that rather than focus on simply the adversarial nature of the current period, to actually see this as something of an aberration inside a history that has, for the most part, over three centuries, been a very friendly and mutually appreciative relationship. Would that be your case? Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I think what even surprised me when I started doing the research for this book um, I think there's a tendency for those of us who are interested in the history of U.S.-Iran relations um, sort of anecdotally or as, as sort of amateurs to kind of uh, assume that uh, it is a relationship marked by hostility and negativity and, and antagonism and to kind of look for where those antagonisms began. Um, you know, when I think the reality, and to, and to many ways feel sort of trapped by that history. And I think there's a tendency to say, oh, well, you know, uh, talk about the 1979 hostage crisis and the, or the 1953 coup, uh, as, you, as you suggested in your introduction, um, and that somehow we're still trapped by those kinds of uh, original sins and so on. We're, in reality, I think history liberate can liberate us if we actually look at the broader, deeper history of U.S.-Iran relations, because over a couple of centuries, it's marked by a remarkable degree of, of mutual warmth, uh, sort of uh, uh, mutual admiration, fascination, and even a kind of mutual idealization. And, and, uh, and why would it be good to know that? I mean, why is it so important to you to make the case that the relationship has not been as acrimonious over the years? How does that serve us? Well, because I think that, uh, you know, when you, when you sort of ask yourself, well, you know, when you begin with antagonism, uh, you will end with antagonism. If you're kind of looking for where the problems are and how the problems began, you're also inherently looking for whose fault it is and who started it and things like that. Those are the questions you're asking. And I think as historians, those are not the questions we should be asking. Um, uh, people are certainly, I think, as people, we're entitled to kind of wonder that. But I think we also have to ask ourselves, well, if the relationship is so bad, you know, has it always been? How did it get 
to be so bad? And if so, how did it get to be good in the first place, perhaps? You know, was there a time when, when things weren't so bad? Um, and what does that reveal? Uh, because I think that when we look at it that way, we also, we, we appreciate it, you know, not only do we appreciate the history in a different way, but we also appreciate what has been lost and what can be regained. There is a, it is true that, you know, Americans began to look at Iran in a very different way after 1979, and that Iranians on the whole began to look at the United States in a very different way after 1953. But the question is, well, what was lost? What is the, what is the world that was lost uh, when these problems began? Um, and I think that's also just as interesting. I'm assuming this is not to say that they're not to dismiss or downplay any legitimate beefs that, uh, say, Iran- Iranians might have with uh, American imperialism in the 20th century or a CIA-led coup or current day sanctions or, or whatever, right? Right, or the or the legitimate concerns that the United States might have with the 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 activities of the Islamic Republic. Absolutely, the absolutely. You know, these are these are all very legitimate things. Uh, you know, but I think they are they do not characterize the overwhelming history of these two countries. It's a, a very different kind of history when you look at the whole the whole story. What seems to be really novel about your book, I mean, it uh, is that you've looked at this relationship. Um, and you've decided to go way back before, say, mid-20th century, something that most historians haven't done. In fact, I've seen historians comment on this book and go, I had no idea what, what this guy's writing about in the 18th century is, is a revelation to me. Why did you want to go back so far? You know, I didn't initially. Uh, it was The book sort of led in that direction. I mean, initially I said, look, I want to get past 1979 and 1953. I want to get past the blame game of who started it and so on. But then the obvious question, next question was, well, where do you begin? Uh, and a lot of American historians, I realized, begin around 1940, because that's when you start to get major American advisory missions, military advisory missions, financial advisory missions coming to, to Iran. Um, but I think the problem with that is that, you know, that's, because they're and before and they don't look at anything before 1940 because before that the U.S. is an isolationist power and the State Department archives uh, suggest that Iran simply wasn't very important to the United States before that, which was fine. But the problem was that with that is that you're only approaching the history from the U.S. perspective. I mean, the history of U.S.-Iran relations doesn't just begin when the United States becomes interested in Iran. Right. Uh, it turns out that well before that the Iranian successive Iranian governments were very interested in cultivating better relations with the United States. So you could start the history in the 1850s or 1860s with the first kind of political relations between the two countries. But then I thought, well, why are we only talking about politics? What about relations between the people? And those begin much earlier. They begin in the 1830s when you have Presbyterian missionaries from the U.S. going over to Iran to build schools and clinics and try to convert people to American-style Presbyterian Christianity. That's where... I could have begun, but then I thought I did something a little bit more eccentric, which is to say, well, what about the prehistory, the preconceived notions? Uh, you know, when any in any relationship between two people, there is the story of their relationship, but there's a story of what they might have thought before they even met. And I thought that's just as interesting. And I was very surprised to find, I didn't expect to find much, but I was surprised to find that in both countries, there are a lot of preconceived notions before there's any kind of contact. Right. For example, in this, as early as the 1720s, a, a full century before any Americans and Iranians really started to interact with one another, you had Ameri- colonial American newspapers you know, writing with great detail and great enthusiasm about Iran, uh, and that surprised me. And why, and why do I think that's relevant? Because I think a lot of the um, assumptions and ideas that they began to develop 
actually you know were informed a lot of the f the first impressions Americans had of Iranians and actually I think in some ways had an afterlife that actually lasted well into the 1970s. It's uh, amazing. They, they, when you talk about these early uh, American newspapers in the early 1700s, it's astounding because uh, it's so counterintuitive to think that there's these American papers, you know, 300 years ago writing about <laughs> how great Persia is. And, and, you know, um, and yet there's something at work here which is also fascinating, which is that you underscore, which is that if today the issue is that for um, Americans and Iranians, I mean, we're generalizing here, but you know, for the most part, um, there are these tit-for-tat notions that are that are steeped in negative generalizations and stereotypes. That we've always had trouble with that calibration when it comes to Iran and America, because you say the histories of Iran and America back then, and for the most part until the mid 20th century, are based on mutual idealization. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, and, and I could say a lot about this, but just very, very briefly, I mean, if you look at some of the newspapers of the 1720s, they are not only obsessed with Iran, uh, because there happens to be a big news story going on in Iran at the time, the collapse of the Safavid Empire, but they're very, very pro-Iranian. Uh, they have an idealized view of Iran, uh, and I explain in the book why that is. It's for a number of different reasons, both religious and political. Uh, they see, the, you know, the Persian Empire is the enemy of my enemy, is my friend, because the Persians were the great arch-rivals of the Ottoman Empire, which was seen as the great evil empire of its day. They are seen as less Muslim because they're Shia. Uh, and, you know, they're also, there's the knowledge that people have from the Bible, where the Persians are, you know, they look good in the Bible. Uh, they, Cyrus frees the Jews from Babylonian captivity, and the three Magi, the three wise men from the East, the Zoroastrian priests, and so on, you know, were probably Persians. You know, so they have an idealized view of Iran to begin with. You know, it's it's almost, uh, I don't want to say that that view doesn't change over the next couple of centuries, but there is something about that that is surprisingly constant throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Hmm. Uh, this idea that, that Persia, that Iran is this kind of exotic oriental kingdom that's slightly further to the east of everything that is seen as um, threatening or sinful about uh, the Muslim world. Um, and it, it plays into, in many ways, the way that I Iran, or at least the Iranian government, presented itself in, in, as late as the 1970s, right? Uh, and and it, there's a whole generation of Iranians and Iranian, you know, Iranians in exile as well today in diaspora, as we know, who continue to perpetuate this sort of Aryan myth and this right. sort of idea that, you <laughs> right. know, that, well, we're not really Muslim, we're not really Middle Eastern, you know, we're sort of, you know. So, uh, well, I want to get to that, but, the, but this persophilia, as you call it, uh, mm -hmm. It infects. Uh, it goes as high as the founding fathers. I mean, you talk about mm -hmm. how everyone from Jefferson to Franklin to Adams knew of and spoke grandly of ancient Persian history. Just, <laughs> what did you make of that when you discovered it? Yeah, there's a great respect for Persian history and ancient Persian history. They didn't know much about contemporary Iran, um, but you know what they did know of Persia was, as I say, partly from the Bible, but also from a lot of the classical studies that a lot of the Enlightenment thinkers and the founding fathers had. I mean, they were deeply familiar with the Greek writings on uh, the Persians from from the ancient period, um, which you know, if you've read Herodotus and if you've read other Greek ancient Greek writers, you know that the, although they were great arch enemies of the Persians and fought wars for decades. Had a had a sort of begrudging respect for the Persians. I mean, Herodotus was, you know, uh, famously a huge admirer of the Persians. I mean, you know, you had um, even that famous post office motto, uh, you know, that uh, is chiseled into the New York post office in 1911. 
uh, neither uh, snow nor sleet nor rain nor you know gloom of night shall stay these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds is drawn from Herodotus. He's praising the Persian uh. Empire for its very efficient postal service. That it was the first major, large continental uh, postal service that you know that an empire had created. But in addition to Herodotus, you had other ancient Greek writers like Xenophon, who wrote this book called Cyropedia, which was a sort of um, hagiography, a sort of praising account of Cyrus, uh, the Emperor Cyrus. That, uh, surprisingly to me, was read widely by people like John Adams and uh, Jefferson. We know that Jefferson owned two copies, uh, and he had notes in the margin where he compared the <laughs> difference between them, and that, that, that Abigail Adams told her son, John Quincy Adams, to read this and learn a, about how to be a leader uh, from Cyrus's example. I mean, we know that the founding fathers were very sort of neoclassical and, you know, and very interested in ancient Greek and Roman history. But I think what we don't know is that they also had a great appreciation for ancient Persian history, actually. And you talk about by 19, by 1800, 1800, <laughs> there's a keen understanding and, and knowledge of Persian history, even amongst American school children, who for the most part knew the story of Cyrus the Great. Uh, Cyrus was a great... It was a household name, you say, in America. And this is tit for tat because in the 19th century, and you mentioned it a little earlier in this interview, the Iranian government, you say, or the Iranian regimes, wanted an alliance with the Americans, hoping for some kind of third force to counter the role of Russians and and the British. The Iranians wanted more U.S. involvement, which would be... Um, kind of ironic if people see this through the lens of 21st century uh, um, relations. Um, it was the idea was that the Iranians felt the U.S. was not coming with an imperialist mentality. Can you speak to that? Exactly. Just as early Americans kind of um, idealized the Persian Empire, the, you know, the, the Persians of the 19th century and, and well into the 20th century really idealized the United States and saw it as a sort of uh, a, a different kind of European power because they saw America, they believed they saw Americans as Europeans, basically just Europeans who were very far away. Um, and they saw them as a, as preferable to, to the, the British Empire or the French or the, or the Russians who in many cases were taking advantage of, of Iran's weakness to manipulate and interfere in Iranian affairs behind the scenes. But what they saw in the United States was a country that had all the, pro the economic and political and military progress of, of the West that they could learn from but without the the greed and the cynicism, you know, they they saw the U.S. in in the 1860s and 1870s as a country that had come to power a hundred years earlier and a revolution against the British Empire, as a country that didn't seem to want to interfere in the affairs of smaller and weaker countries, and this was perpetuated. In 1910s, you know, during the Woodrow Wilson presidency, they, they really admired the, the U.S. for its kind of policy of non-interference and so on. Um, yeah, but uh, and yeah, one of the to me the most delicious ironies of early U.S.-Iran kind of political relations in the 1850s and 60s, right? This is the first. It was is it the very first treaty that the two countries negotiated with each other was in the 1850s, right. and it was the first disagreement that the two countries had. It, you know, they spent five years arguing about this treaty in the 1850s. It took them longer to negotiate that than it took the U.S. and Iran to negotiate the nuclear deal in, <laughs> in the 2010s. All right, all right. Um, and you think, what are they arguing about in the 1850s? And it turns out one of the big sticking points was that the Iranian government wanted to buy American warships and have and fly the Stars and Stripes and have them manned by American sailors it, as part of the, uh, the Persian Navy to send, a message, right, to send a message to the British Empire and the Persian Gulf to say, look, we have this new ally. And the U.S.'s response was, oh, we don't want any part of, we don't want to interfere in your business. 
which is the direct opposite of the arguments they have today, right? Why was Nasser al-Din Shah, you talk about this in the book, the monarch of Iran in the second half of the 19th century, I mean, for 50 years, why was he in particular so taken by the United States? Well, there's not much evidence that he particularly was, although there is some evidence of this. Uh, it's his governments, his prime ministers, in particular, Amir Kabir in the 1850s. Um, there is some evidence that Nasser al-Din Shah, I mean, when he traveled, he never went to the U.S., of course, the, the the last Shah of Iran was the only Shah who ever traveled to the U.S. Uh, in Iranian history. But Nasruddin Shah did travel to Europe a few times. Uh, and, and in one of his trips, he remarked in his diary about the wealthy Americans that he saw on Regent Street in London. And he remarked on the bales of American cotton that were being unloaded on Liverpool docks. You know, he clearly had some awareness of this as a, as a rising economic and political power of the United States. But it was more of a generation of political officials and thinkers and intellectuals and newspaper editors in the 1850s and 60s who were really smitten by the U.S. example. And again, they saw the U.S., as I say, as a country that seemed to mind its own business. They kind of loved that. I mean, the, the U.S., I mean, there were American, there were a lot of American missionaries, you know, building schools and clinics and working yes, in Iran at the yes. time, but there was no American embassy and there was no legation. And that was striking to Iranians because there were plenty of British Anglican missionaries and Russian uh, Orthodox missionaries, not even as many as there were Americans, actually, in many cases, but yeah, and, and yet the Russian and British legations, the embassies had a very strong political presence in, in Iran. And that was an interesting, it was an interesting observation to Iranians that, you know, we have Americans who just seem to be here to kind of help and build schools and clinics and yeah, proselytize as well, but their government seems not to be interested. And that just that alone made the U.S. kind of appealing. You know, this, this country that just didn't want to get sucked in. Fair to say, the, the, the U.S. was not tainted the way Britain and the French and Russia were. Yeah, it was easy to idealize the U.S. And I think that's, frankly, that's a lot of what was happening. It's not that the U.S. had this extremely kind of particularly noble approach to Iran. It's just they just didn't care. Again, and they're just yeah, not interested. The mutual idealization, as you, you say earlier. Yeah. Right. So, so um, when we get into the, the 20th century, uh, John, the, 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 uh, you mentioned President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, a few minutes ago. Tell me about the U.S. under Woodrow Wilson coming to the support of Iranian sovereignty in 1919, 1920, right around the, the proposed Anglo-Persian agreement with the British that had been announced and had drawn the ire of much of the Iranian population. How important was Wilson's stand to Iranians? This is a fascinating episode, right? Because I, there's no evidence that Wilson spent a lot of time thinking about Iran personally, but you know he articulated this agenda where of self-determination for the small and the weak states as well as the large and the powerful, which was pretty revolutionary at the time for an American or for any kind of great world leader, especially one that had just, you know, uh, won the war, uh, won a world war, um, you know, and he believed that uh, that that all countries that have been affected by the war should be represented at the at the peace conference in Paris in 1919. The British felt very differently. They felt that only belligerents should be represented at the table, and that Iran was officially neutral during the war, so it had no it had nothing to, to talk about. Well, it happened, I mean, Iran may have been neutral during the First World War, but all of the great powers, uh, the British, the French, the Germans, the Russians, uh, you know, and even the United States, had been in some way or another you know, crisscrossing Iranian territory, uh, involved involving Iran and the Ottoman Empire as well, most importantly, uh, involving Iran in, in the war. The, you know, very, very large numbers of Iranians, hundreds of thousands had died of famine 
you know, Iran had suffered greatly because of the presence of, because of its own weakness, because of basically the presence of foreign forces on its soil, who just simply disregarded Iran's declaration of neutrality in the war. And so the U.S. and other powers felt that that alone gave Iran a right to seek some kind of reparations. Um, the British felt differently. They said, look, uh, that's fine, but we'll, we'll speak on Iran's behalf uh, at uh, the Paris uh, uh, conference. And the U.S. didn't like this approach. They said that they felt that it smacked of kind of high-handed imperialism. You know, long story short, the, the British did a secret deal with the Shah, uh, an Anglo-Persian agreement that they announced in 1919 that basically said, oh, you know, uh, we'll help to compensate Iran for its losses, but actually we also will then take an advisory role in the running of the Iranian government's right, affairs. Right. It's extremely unpopular in Iran, as well as in the United States, and even in, the, in, even in Britain, to be honest. Um, uh, you know, and the U.S. actually made public its dissatisfaction uh, this, it, for this uh, arrangement. Uh, and that alone brought the U.S. so much popularity in Iran, there were pro-American demonstrations in the streets of Tehran in 1919. You know, if you, when you talk about the big bumps in the road, the, the, the very big bumps in the road in this relationship being 1953 and, and 1979, if we talk about the 53 coup, Something that's very curious that, that, you know, often we forget things when you think about the coup and you think, uh, okay, they removed Mossadegh, he must have been anti-American or something, you know. In 1951, as you talk about, Mossadegh actually visits the UN, visits the United States and leaves Americans and the American media deeply impressed. But the American administration then becomes obviously less enthusiastic and ends up overseeing a coup to remove Mossadegh and buttress the Shah. Simply put from your perspective, why? The Cold War is the short answer. Um, the British had a long-standing disagreement with Mossadegh because he was trying to nationalize, the, or he had nationalized the uh, Anglo-Iranian oil company, which for a long time had had a, a British company, which for a long time had had a monopoly over the production and profits uh, uh, on Iranian oil. Iran and the United Kingdom had broken off political ties, uh, uh, and there was a real standoff between the two countries. Um, the U.S. was trying to play the honest broker under the Truman administration, but when Eisenhower is elected in 1952, he comes to power on a wave of anti-Soviet, anti-communist sentiment in the United States. He's the first Republican to win back the White House in 20 years, and he does so, you know, the campaign is very focused on, on the Red Scare. Uh, and the British realize that this is an angle they can work. Uh, so they go to work with the, with the incoming directors of the CIA and the State Department, the, the, the Dulles brothers, you know, are sort of fire-breathing anti-communists. And they, and they right. convince them, they say, look, everyone knows Mossadegh is not a communist. He has no, you know, that's well known. But uh, as the British begin to undermine his government uh, and you know, impose sanctions and weaken the state and so on, uh, Mossadegh finds it harder and harder. They start to buy off his enemies, and, you know, et cetera. Mossadegh finds it harder and harder to govern without the support of the street uh, demonstrations, and in many cases those are led by the communists, uh, and he loathes the communists, but it is, becomes very easy for the CIA and others to put news, you know, magazine articles in front of the Eisenhower administration that says, look, Mossadegh's government is weak, it's, it's in trouble, it's having to rely on communist support, and Iran, frankly, is a weak third world country that is not ready for democracy of the kind that Mossadegh wants. And the Soviets are going to are just waiting in the wings to take advantage. So you've got to do something. Mm. Um, and that's uh, that's the rest is history. As they say. You know, you know, given that a coup occurs 
uh, and obviously there's some disagreement on this in in the contemporary Persian community. But I mean, uh, it's fair to say, at least most historians would argue, there was a coup. There was a popular prime minister who was removed. It's actually quite remarkable that this that following this, there are almost. 30 years of solidarity with the with the Iran in the United States and 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 you say many Iranians and even the Iranian media remain somehow sympathetic or kind of forgiving towards the Americans why do you think that is there's a solidarity at the state to state level after 53 there is a very strong solidarity between the government of the Shah the last Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi and the and successive American presidents and administrations although to greater and lesser degrees but there is less and less solidarity on the Iranian street with the United States. And I don't want to say that suddenly everything changes after 53, but it does in the minds especially of the modern, educated middle classes of Iran, who are the, who are the, the bedrock of Mossadegh's support. Uh, they simply never see the U.S. the same way again. Um, you know, opposition to the U.S. more broadly in Iranian society takes longer. Uh, it develops gradually over the 1960s and 70s as the Shah drifts towards autocratic government and is seen more and more as a, as, a, as a king who is propped up by United States support. Not entirely true, of course, but it's how he's seen. Uh, he never really lives down the fact that he, his throne was secu- secured for him in 1953 by the Americans. Right. So it's a gradual process. Um, you know, but, but you're right. Even in the, I think the, what you're referring to is, that, is specifically some of the pro-Mossadegh media just before the coup. Uh, who are critical of the U.S., but in much, much milder terms than they are of the Yes. British, They're kind of saying, well, they, they don't know any better. You know, so, they're just they're kind of right. forgiving them. It's, 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 it's a, it's a, it plays into what you've, your thesis that this, this idealization, that this undercurrent never really leaves, even, even when there's atrocities or, or, or problems on either side. There's, there's a still, belief. Right. There's a belief. I think, you know, a lot of our, our kind of Iranian diaspora listeners of a certain age will know this. There's a belief, you know, of a generation well into the 1960s and 70s, right, of that generation of Iranians that simply cannot, that, that tends to see Americans as naive uh, and sort of not very bright, uh, not very kind of uh, <laughs> experienced in world affairs. And being, but but the British are somehow the ones that are behind them, <laughs> right? Right, Carl right, right, right. is is just one of those things that that I mean, it's only the more recent generations of Iranians that I think have begun to shed some of that. Uh, you know, our parent, my parents' generation, very much still sees it that way. The solidarity that you talk about at the state level between the Shah and successive American presidents, there there is a there's an exception to that to a certain extent with Kennedy. President mm-hmm. Kennedy comes to power in 1960, and you talk about it being a shaky relationship with the Shah. They don't seem to be fans of each other why no they really loathe each other it's interesting i mean you know publicly officially you know the u.s and iran are, are close for are good friends um but uh they simply don't share a vision uh it's interesting i mean i think you can look at it you know, on a sort of psychological level they're, they're they're men of roughly the same age uh but they're very different in their in their political temperament um the shah has been in power for a while, and he doesn't respect Kennedy. He thinks Kennedy is a, you know, is is a, is a kind of neophyte that he doesn't really understand world politics. That he's too idealistic. Uh, that he hasn't been in power long enough. That you know, the Shah really respects Nixon. Thinks he's a man who really understands, 
You know, he's a realist who understands how the world works. Uh, he really is rooting for Nixon to win the nineteen sixty election, and is very disappointed. And by the way, Nixon is. Nixon takes a shot into the Shah all the way back to fifty three as well, right? That's mutual, right? right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Nixon was was Eisenhower's vice president during the nineteen fifty three coup, and played a and you know and, and played a role uh, in securing the Shah's power. And he's the first American. Uh, vice president to visit uh, Iran in 1954, immediately after the coup, or excuse me, at the end of 53. You know, they have a long-standing. They really grow to like each other from very, very early on. And, and they, you know, Nixon sees they both see each other as as people who are kind of realistic and kind of understand realpolitik and the what. But the Shah looks at Kennedy as someone who's a dreamer and an idealist, and he hears these speeches about the kind of the new frontier and so on, and he just thinks this guy doesn't get it. He doesn't get that we're dealing with the Soviet Union on our with an 1,100-mile border on our north. We need strength, we need discipline, we need military uh, uh, hardware, we need a strong military to kind of to defend against the Soviet Union. The Shah is a strongly anti-communist leader. Um, and later in the Cold War, uh, you know, the American presidents like Johnson and Nixon really come to value that. But Kennedy has this belief, and it's a holdover from the kind of, in some ways, the Truman Democrats, in some ways it's this kind of belief that the way you fight communism in the developing world, in the third world, is not by supporting strongmen, building up militaries, uh, but actually by supporting leaders who are trying to reform and provide kind of social welfare and uh, improved living conditions, because that will take away the appeal of communism uh, in, in third world countries. It will make people less likely to turn to communism if their bellies are full, if, they're, you know, you, if, you know, if their schools are good and their, right, their hospitals right. are good and so on. That's a very different approach. The Shah doesn't believe that, and neither do the Republicans, neither do Nixon you know, and, and Kissinger and so on. They take much more of a philosophy that in the develop, the, the third world is too weak and volatile and unstable, and, it, and, it, and what it needs is strong military uh, defenses against any kind of Soviet invasion or infiltration. And then you can worry about kind of uh, domestic uh, reform right, agendas. Right. So that's the core of the disagreement between Kennedy and the Shah. Well, it's a perfect segue because I was going to say the Nixon doctrine then uh, into the late 60s, early 70s finds a special footing in Iran and leads to massive amounts of arms provided to Iran and funds in exchange of, for Iran becoming a kind of local sheriff of the Middle East. Uh, by the mid-1970s, you chronicle that Iran becomes the world's largest purchaser of American military equipment, accounting for more than one-third of all U.S. arms sales. So as indispensable as America has been and becomes for the Shah, it would seem that Iran, with that level of purchase power, is becoming indispensable to America as well. Yes? Exactly. It's very much a two-way street. Look, the Shah is delighted when Nixon comes to power in 1969. Finally, his old friend, after 15 years, finally uh, you know, reaches the White House. And here's a guy who gets it, who's going to sell us weapons, who understands what we're dealing with. And Nixon, and the feeling is mutual. Nixon feels like, you know, the Shah is someone who really understands the challenges that the U.S. is dealing with in the Middle East. Remember that in the late 60s, early 70s, I mean, the U.S. is really struggling in Southeast Asia. The Middle East is important. It's a region of growing importance. But what they're really looking for is a surrogate, someone who can kind of be a sheriff uh, for the U.S. in the region. And that's the, the, the core of the Nixon doctrine. Now, that doesn't mean that the Shah doesn't also isn't also very smart and sophisticated in the way that he manipulates the United States in many cases. It's not a it's not a purely a purely clientelist relationship, but 
for Nixon, I mean, he's delighted to have someone like the Shah that he can just sell a lot of American weapons to and just know that the, the, the Iran will help to reinforce American policy in the Middle East because it makes it easier for the, U, for the U.S. to focus on its challenges in Vietnam and, and Cambodia and Laos and elsewhere. It's a sort of marriage of convenience, but also a real mutual respect between the two men. The Shah's name even comes up at Watergate, the hearings, where the Shah is uh, um, named as helping to fund the campaign of Nixon in 72. <laughs> yes, there's some speculation about this. It's never well investigated, but uh, um, there's a newspaper columnist who writes, uh, Jack uh, Anderson, who writes uh, a, a very insinuating sort of column about uh, you know whether the Shah's government funneled money to the Nixon's presidential campaign, and um, you know the charges are never fully investigated. They're sort of dropped, but um, they've never been proved either. I mean, it's sort of it's, it's largely speculative. But one thing that is very clear is that the Shah was very much pulling for Nixon to win the election. You know, I want to get to Carter in a second, but before that, I mean, even in this period, uh, as you well know, you're right about it, in the in the 60s and in, in early 70s, and we just did a, an episode uh, um, a few weeks ago on Khal and the uh, the growing sort of guerrilla movement against the Shah. He's, there's, there's the communists, there's the liberal nationalists, there's the religious folks. He's getting, you know, there's, there's a lot of opposition growing and animosity towards the Shah in uh, various parts of Iran. Americans and the American media even remain generally oblivious to this. Um, I, I mean, forget about, you know, late 70s. We'll get to that in a second. But, but all through this period, why, why do you think that is? Yeah, it's tough. Uh, there's a, a sort of mutually enforcing um, sort of information industry, uh, you know, the, at every level. Um, I think t the short answer is the Cold War. It's a Cold War mentality that simply doesn't understand the idea of growing religious fundamentalism or the idea of a kind of conservative religious backlash to dictatorship. Uh, the only kind of political instability that anyone's able to see uh, in the 1970s is communists. Uh, there's a belief that there's a, you know, that if, if that the Shah has done a good job of crushing, you know, kind of communist uh, opposition. Communist Party is banned in Iran, you know, and he's in a very strong position, so he's got nothing to worry about. We simply don't see that there's a different kind of opposition that's growing to the Shah, which is a more moral one, a more cultural one, uh, as well as an economic and political one, that everyone's fed up with the Shah's regime for different reasons. And this is one of the extraordinary things about the Iranian revolution, of course, which is that it meant different things to different people. Uh, but one thing everyone united around was uh, that the Shah had to go. But I think that in the in the U.S. this was, and it wasn't just in the U.S. Nowhere in the world did anyone see the revolution coming. Uh, this was a guy who had been in power for 25 years, who was in, um, or excuse me, 35 years, who had, who was in um, complete control of his country, uh, who had one of the world's largest armies, militaries, one of the world's most sophisticated and brutal secret police apparatus, as well as the support of you know, one of the world's two great superpowers, as well as, you know, not exactly animosity, but, you know, some sort of friendly relations with the other great superpower, you know, what could possibly go wrong? But, yet, <laughs> but, but by the late 70s, there, there are, now it's a little more empirical. There's people in the streets. Mm -hmm. And there's that famous moment 
that most of the people listening, uh, I mean, of a certain vintage, uh, if not uh, interested in this kind of thing, will of course know this this famous moment and the quote. But uh, December 31st, 1977, New Year's Eve, the famous visit to the Imperial Palace with, by Jimmy Carter, President Carter, where he toasts the Shah. And, and the quote is, the re- for the respect, and I want to pay tribute for the respect and admiration and love which your people give to you. And this is only one week before the revolution begins. H- how is it that the U.S., I mean, even if you see this from a pro-Shaw standpoint, and I know a lot of people listening are, you know, remain pro-Shaw, how is it that the U.S. so atrociously miscalculated and underestimated the level of threat that the Shah was facing? Yes, this is that famous island of stability toast, right? Where Jimmy Carter toasts Shah, you know, he says that, you know, Iran, you know, is an, you know, thanks to your leadership, you know, is an island of stability in an right. otherwise troubled region. Right. That's a phrase that had been used a lot in the 1970s um, by, Amer- by a kind of American officialdom to describe Iran. And that's how Iran was seen in Washington. The funny thing is, by the way, I, I think that, that Carter himself, uh, if not, but certainly the State Department and many levels of the American administration didn't really see the Shah quite that way, even, you know, as Carter was speaking those words, I think there was some awareness that there were problems. But this is one of the funny things about the Shah, right, is that he was a deeply, deeply insecure man. And one of the things that he needed most was constant sense of reassurance of American friendship. And Jimmy Carter's administration, like um, John Kennedy's administration before it, the previous, the you know, weren't, they didn't love the Shah, they didn't they, they, they knew the Shah needed to, to sort of reform and liberalize, but they, they were kind of trapped because as much as they wanted to push the Shah in that direction, they also knew that if they pushed him too much, he would get nervous and there would be a backlash. And they also had to sort of reassure him of American friendship all the time, that when he was in his weakest moments, he, had, he needed to see these displays of American solidarity. So I think that's what that moment was really all about. You know, I, I think Carter probably himself even knew as he was saying those words that it, it weren't quite true. But that that would somehow help the Shah, that if you could assuage some of his anxieties and insecurities, that he might actually be able to work. You you, you could work better with him to right. bring right. about liberalization right. and reform. But of course, it's a, it's you know it's famous last words. I mean, as you say, and as I write in the book, it's literally a week later the revolution begins. Yeah. There's a school of thought that says um, I think that we've had a couple of people on the show who've said this. In fact, that that from the perspective of the Americans that Iran doesn't become the enemy because of the revolution, but because of the hostage crisis. Do you agree with that? Yeah, this is the thing that's easy to forget, is that the Iranian revolution, at least initially, wasn't, and I wouldn't, I want to be careful about how I say this, it's not that it wasn't anti-American, or that Khomeini wasn't anti-American, he was anti a lot of things, but America was just one of the many things that were on the menu of things that Khomeini didn't like, and that a lot of the revolutionaries didn't like. They also hated the Soviets. And the leftists that backed the revolution didn't share that point of view necessarily. But, you know, Khomeini and, and, and those closest to him, you know, hated communism as well. They, you know, they hated all kinds of things. Um, you know, but the revolution initially didn't take an overwhelmingly anti-American direction. It was an anti-Shah revolution. Uh, but when the United States gave asylum to the Shah eight months into the revolution, um, things changed. Uh, there was a, a, a concern on the street that, well, what was happening? Was 1953 about to repeat itself? It was lost on nobody that 25 years earlier, 26 years earlier, um, this great moment of national self-determination and, and kind of 
nationalism and patriotic kind of fervor around that Mossadegh had been able to bring about in the country was swiftly overturned by a coup uh, led by the CIA plotted at, at the American embassy that's, that flew the Shah back into the country. So when, they, when people on the streets learned that the US Shah was suddenly being admitted to New York for cancer treatment, because he had been in Mexico at the time, they thought, oh boy, no, 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 fool us once, shame on you, fool us twice, shame on us. And so the U.S. Embassy became almost a visible symbol of plotting and you know, intrigue and what are they really plotting, what are they doing, are they going to try to fly the Shah back into the country again, all this kind of stuff. Ironically, there was no such plot. <laughs> the Americans had learned uh, you know, from their previous experience. They were not about to try to whisk the Shah back to power. But this was one of the many legacies of 1953, which was that nobody in Iran really believed that. And so there was anxiety about what the embassy was really up to. And that's when you saw the students uh, storming the embassy and overrunning the police barricades. Uh, and that's the, the beginning of the, of the the hostage crisis at the U.S. embassy. And, and yet, e- even in the last 40 years, we know that the American and Iranian regimes ha- have not always been that distant. I mean, the Reagan administration, of course, infamously sold arms to Iran through back channels just a few years after this hostage crisis. So, I mean, without playing into our Iranian tendency towards conspiracy theories, do you, do you believe the U.S.-Iran relationship is actually stronger still in the back channels than we're led to believe? No, I don't think so, actually. I think that um, it may have been in the 1980s. But this is one of the funny ironies about the last 40 years which is that when the Iranian revolution was at its most radical, its most anti-American, when the people, streets were most anti-American, most, uh, when, they, when the support for the Iranian revolution was at its height in the 1980s, the U.S. was less hostile to the Islamic Republic than it has been at almost any point since. I mean, again, yeah, I, I am always fascinated by the fact that here you had Ronald Reagan, the kind of, the great, you know, conservative, you know, icon, right, who came to power saying, you know, Iran, you know, the Iranian government, they're barbarians, you know, we'll never negotiate with terrorists and so on, was selling weapons through the Israelis to Iran, um, hoping that it would, you know, help to bring about some sort of back-channel improvement in U.S.-Iran relations, as well as get hostages freed in Lebanon and so on. But, um, you know, that Ronald Reagan, when, and then when that plot was, uh, was exposed in the media, came on television in November 1986 and said to the American people, he tried to explain why they'd been, do, they'd been doing this. He said, look, uh, the Iranian revolution is, an, is a fact of history, but between American and Iranian basic national interests, there need be no permanent conflict. No American president, with the possible exception, of, arguably, of Obama, has spoken like that about Iran since. Even though Iran has actually become gradually less radical and less anti-American uh, in its government, but certainly among its people uh, since the 1990s. Let me ask you about the people, um, both in Iran and outside of Iran and the diaspora and the Americans. I mean, despite this famous animosity that we've been discussing since 1979 and the, you know, the death to America rallies in the streets, which existed and, and, and exist at times, mm-hmm. th- there has always been a like a fondness for all things American. I used to try to explain this to friends in high school in the 1980s who would be seeing Iran as an evil place that, you know, no, actually Iranians love Western cars and denims and hamburgers, you know. And some of that ongoing affection seems to seep into the personal politics of today. There, as you would know, there's no shortage of Iranians in the diaspora who want the United States, the United States to intervene or to stage a coup in Iran. Mm. Would you say that all in all, 
after all this recent history and a literal revolution, on some level, we still can't quit America? <laughs> yes, I think there's, there's something to be said for that. Um, I think that uh, even some of that pro-American sentiment that you were talking about from, or telling your friends about in the 1980s, if anything, it's become much stronger since. I mean, we know this. Uh, Iran, one thing Iran has in common with the United States is they're both deeply, deeply divided countries, <laughs> politically and culturally and religiously and morally. You know, this is the thing that always strikes me when I go to Iran from the U.S. is how incredibly similar in some ways the country's politics actually is. Mm. Um, you know, it's... it's there. The divisive politics has become a feature of most of the world in recent years, <laughs> but but I think that Iran and the U.S. are both countries that were out in the vanguard of this. You know, and what I mean by that is that when you go to Iran, one of the, it really strikes me is that you know the similarity, um, like in the United States. You know, I, th I think one of the problems we've had in the U.S. throughout, you know, it's it's not just recent years; it's actually been going on for a few decades now. Is this gradual tendency, gradual? You know, our politics has gradually been moving in the direction of I don't just disagree with you; I reject who you are as a person. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that. Uh, you know, if, if you know, we are we have become two very different types of countries. You know, we see this all the time, right? In our lifestyles, in our, you know, in our beliefs, in our in our kind of the way we look at the people who disagree with us, and so on. Iran is very similar in that way. I mean, you have two two very different types of Irans. You know, you have. You know, actually, you have many, many different, you have a range of political beliefs, but, you know, to kind of grotesquely oversimplify, I mean, you do have a, a hard core of people in Iran who are deep believers in the Islamic Republic and, and uh, who see their identity as Iranians as being very much about religion and the Islamic Republic and a rejection of, of the U.S. and the West and American hegemony in the Middle East and so on. And you have a totally different type of Iranian that is that rebels against anything Islamic uh, that it's forced on them that is that embraces Western culture and and, uh, and it's a it's a and they, they can't stand each other I mean that you yeah, see it in yeah. every little interaction in yeah. Iran it's it's always kind of under the the surface right you know even when it comes to things like the Shabi Yalda which is striking because Shabi Yalda I think if you talk to an older generation of Iranians I mean sure people celebrated it in the 1950s and 60s and 70s of course they did. But, but, you know, non-religious secular festivals like that have become so much more important to a certain type of Iranian, either in the diaspora or in Iran, right. that likes to very performatively demonstrate their secularness. You know, and that goes for things like Nowruz, all these kinds of like traditionally Persian Zoroastrian types of holidays. Yeah. Whereas a diff very different kind of Iranian, you know, doesn't care as much about Shabi Alda, but cares about much more about things like Eid al-Qurban and, you know, Eid al-Fetr and things like that, you know, Islamic holidays. There are two Mother's Days in Iran, right? There's the kind of Western or American one, and then there's the, there's the, the Feast of Fatima, right? You know, which was perpetuated by the government. I mean, I think in, in a lot of little ways like that, it's, um, you know... You know, it's interesting that you should say that because I, I had hoped to get to um, to ask you about it's It's not just, you were talking about in Iran, you mentioned the diaspora. I mean, it, the diaspora is balkanized as well, as you know, and mm. and highly, <laughs> it's almost like clockwork, depending on who we bring on the show or what mm -hmm. we're talking about. There's You get some reaction or another. And I'm thinking about you and I'm thinking about this book that you spent literally years writing and the depth of the research and, and the depth of... Uh, the comprehensive nature of it. 
and um, and by all means, I mean it is very well reviewed and 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 has done very very well. But you know, just researching you online, I mean, there's there's you know no shortage of his of, of accusations, you know, from members of our community, right? right? That you're some kind of agent of the regime, that you have you know written this with an agenda, that you get paid off. Um, and, and again, that's not that surprising because every anybody who says anything. But tell me about writing a book like this and having to deal with that. Yeah, I put all, I tried to put all that out of my mind when I was writing because I, you, you will go out of your mind if you try to write a book with you know trying to please everybody. There's no way you can tackle a topic like this and know that you're going to please everyone. You, you know, I knew going into this that there were people who would not like the book, no matter what. No matter what. And you just can't worry about that. I mean, all I was trying to do with this book was simply make sure that every actor in this drama over the past couple of centuries was heard on its own terms and that when people, when actors make choices, we see why they're doing them, why they're making those choices. That's it. That alone is enough to infuriate some people. Because if you have very strident views in one way or in one direction or another, it doesn't matter what direction they are, you know, you, we know this of people who have very strong, strident political views is that they want to see people who don't agree with them as evil, as monsters, as irrational, as people who, who make choices right. based on based on their just inherent evil. And I happen to believe, and people think I'm naive, but I happen to believe that most people don't actually operate that way, that there are very few true sociopaths in this world. <laughs> you know, that, you know, if there's a regime that we don't like, and certainly I have no love for the Islamic Republic, but if there's a regime that we don't like, that, you know... It, that uh, I forget how I even began the sentence now, but I, you know, I, I tend. Oh, I happen to believe that, you know, they are making choices based on things that make sense to them, and it's not because they're evil or crazy, uh, or sociopathic or psycho. Uh, and I think that if you approach things in that way, it's how I approach life, you know, how I approach people who disagree with me as much as I can. I try to walk in their shoes a little bit. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean you have to suddenly say that what they've done is not wrong or that you know that you're wrong. You lose nothing. In fact, if anything, you're stronger uh, when you can see the humanity in your enemies. I really believe that. And I think that the United States, especially as the world's most powerful country, should be strong enough to be able to see the humanity in its enemies. You, that doesn't mean you agree with them uh, or that you uh, don't um, you know, continue to find ways to, to you know, uh, you know, put for, perpetuate your own interests. So That's fine. notwithstanding internet trolls, what, what, what has most surprised you or what has been most interesting in the reaction that you've received to putting this book out there over the past year? Not that much has surprised me. I think I got the kinds of criticism that I expected to get from a sort of mainstream foreign policy establishment and I welcome it. Um, I wear it as a badge of pride uh, because not because I have, I'm, and I'm, I don't, you know, I'm not a sort of, you know, uh, not because I want to be some sort of rabble rouser or anything. And I don't think actually, if you read the book, it's particularly radical actually. But I think that um, I know that um, there has been for a long time a certain kind of consensus in Washington policy-making circles about Iran, which I think personally has not been helpful to Washington policy-making. Uh, it's not, you know, I don't care about the Islamic Republic or Iran or who wins or who loses, but I think that if you're a Washington policymaker and you're trying to win or get an edge uh, or a leg up against Iran, uh, you're doing yourself no favors by living in a fantasy world in which you think the Islamic Republic is about to collapse any minute. Uh, and that you can bring about that collapse. That people don't like it when I say that, but it's it's not. I don't say that because I don't 
want to see the Islamic Republic collapse. I actually don't care one way or the other about that. I'm a, as a historian, it's not my job to be cheerleading for one particular outcome or another. As a historian, it's my job to help us understand how we got to where we are. And if your job as a Washington policymaker is to try to defeat Iran in some way, I think you bloody well better understand how we got to where we are. Uh, and that means understanding that the Islamic Republic, sadly, whether you like it or not, is not a house of cards that's about to collapse any minute. It's a great pleasure talking to you. I really do believe the the book is spectacular. And part of the reason, part of the, uh, it's quite telling that uh, in discussing the uh, the history of the United States and Iran, uh, you're really discussing Iranian history. <laughs> I mean, it's 600 pages or whatever it is of, of really learning, uh, of going through Iranian history over the last uh, two or 300 years. Uh, what, what is your, if I could ask a final question, and I'm, and I'm sure it's a cliche one, you're used to at this point, but but perhaps that means you have an answer. What What is your gut sense of what the next chapter of Iran and America will be? Uh, sadly, I think it's more of the same, a lot of containment. I think we're back to the 90s in a lot of ways where there's a sort of con a distance and a containment and a lack of real movement one way or the other, um, a sort of low-grade Cold War, if you will. Um, I wish that wasn't the case, but I sort of feel that both countries are kind of given up on on a better relationship uh, the sort of reformists and elements in Iran have been very badly undermined by the withdrawal of the U.S. and the JCPOA, and, and you know, and I think there's a interest in cultivating better relations with China instead. And I think in the U.S. there's also a, a real exhaustion with the Middle East and a desire to move on to other things like China and Russia. And I and I I just um, I think the two countries will continue to kind of nip at each other's heels for a while, but not much will happen. Dr. John Glasvinian, I thank you so much for this today. That's my pleasure. I've enjoyed the conversation. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. John Glasvinian, an author, historian, and former journalist. He is currently the executive director of the Middle East Center at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. His latest book published this past year is entitled America and Iran, A History from 1720 to the Present. Dr. John Glasvinian joined us from Philadelphia. Pennsylvania today. This is full time for the Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 14, brought to you with the support of Yazdani Law Group, one of Canada's largest immigration law firms, YLGPC, on Instagram. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. That's our website where you can also find out information about becoming a sponsor or a patron to help us out, rookmedia.com. Thanks to the whole team who make this happen. Talented Anahita, Super Parisa, Ponta the Artist, Savi Roham, Alay Merdad, the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shia. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. Find me on Instagram at Giangomeshi. Mizun Bashin.